Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody. This is uh, New Books Network. I'm Victoria Lupashko, one of the hosts. And today we are joined by Dr. Krista Brun, Assistant Professor of Portuguese and Spanish at Penn State University. Hello, Dr. Brun. Hi, Victoria. It's so nice to be here and to be here with all the New Books Network. Absolutely. And we're very happy to have you today. And thank you for agreeing to talk to us about our, your new book, Creative Transformations, Travels and Translations of Brazil in the Americas, published by State University of New York Press. Um, before I start asking the usual questions, I wanted to um, begin by getting to know you and your work better. And particularly, I was um, planning to ask you um, about how you came to this project, you know, to translations, talking about travels, you know, to Brazil. And, you know, what got you interested in Brazil in the first place and in translations in particular? Wonderful. Yeah, it's a really, I think because of someone not being a native Portuguese speaker, not being from Brazil, I've always thought about my own interactions and experiences with Brazil and the Portuguese language through ideas of both travel and translation. So there was a personal interest in it, but going back further before coming to this project, I think I was first um, got interested in Brazil and in Portuguese and in Lusophone literature more broadly when I was an undergrad and I had been someone that was interested in kind of Spanish America, Spanish language, and Latin America more generally. I thought, if I want to understand Latin America, I need to think a little bit more about Brazil. I was fortunate enough to have wonderful Portuguese language classes as an undergrad, and those classes used often music and literature and film as a way to get students and as a way to teach language and to teach the grammar and vocabulary. And from there, I just continued to study and to become more and more interested. And I think one experience in particular that helped kind of ground my ideas and my understanding of of travel and translation as the center of this project was while I was in a, both as a graduate student and in particular before I started graduate school when I was on a Fulbright in Brazil at Unacampi in Campinas outside of Sao Paulo, I began to think more about this idea of how as individuals who travel and who are moving between the two languages, we're often thinking of these ways in which how we, or how we can communicate our own experiences or communicate the ideas of other nations through sort of common reference points. And so I think sort of from often it was based more on a personal experience, but then combined with academic study and educational exchange and other sorts of more, I guess, academic processes. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as you were talking about languages and travels, um, I could definitely attest to to this idea of, of, you know, translating oneself and translating to oneself what you see and what you understand when you learn a new language or you get in contact with, with a culture that you really want to understand. So um, that was particularly uh, interesting and remains interesting to me. Um, and I'm sure a lot of the, the listeners will, will feel the same. Um, And, you know, the the book centers around this and is comprised of four chapters, the introduction and the conclusion. And in the very well-polished introduction, I really loved it, um, you pose uh, leading questions that guide the book. And specifically, as we can find on page five, and I quote, um, to what extent is this possible? Is it possible to translate Brazil? Right. In quotes. And what are the political implications of such a project? Who are these uh, translators of Brazil and how do they contribute to representations and interpretation of the nation? And also, um, how does a focus on translation? 
translation's role in hemispheric exchanges contributes to our understanding of Brazil's place in the Americas. End of quote. And um, well, we will go over each chapter shortly. Um, for now, I was wondering whether you could tell us more about the ways in which these questions guided the research when you were in the archives and influenced your definition of the key terms here, such as translation and traveling, as well as the relationship between them. Of course. Well, I think I want to go back a little bit to before I was in the archives, while I was a graduate student initially thinking of this project and sort of creating what was an incipient version that I would then revise and transform into what is now the book. This was at the moment of when Lula was announcing that Brazil was going to be the host of the 2014 World Cup and also the 2016 Olympic Games. And there was this idea of Brazil finally reaching its place on a world stage. And of course, this sort of narrative of Brazil you know, making it among as one of the leaders of the global south and having this prominent role in international politics and hemispheric politics has transformed radically within the past, say, really since the past four years, or really more than that, since the protests began in 2013. But different moments of it, I was when I was first interested, I was trying to think of it, how is this, what makes it possible for Brazil to be on this world stage? And part of that being on a world stage is how does there, this idea of translating the nation emerge? And what who is involved in these processes? And who is the nation being translated for and by whom? Um, and I was thinking about that, which led me to sort of think of, okay, if in this key moment of these mega events, the world is coming to Brazil, how is it that in earlier moments, elite Brazilians were going to the world, right? They were expressing a, what we might call a cosmopolitan desire for the world through their own physical travels, through their forms of reading, and through processes of, say, the international exhibitions in the 19th century, I found that there were these resonances between earlier manifestations and what was happening in the first decades of the 21st century. And so I think that sort of historical, sociopolitical context was something that led me to interrogate the ideas of travel and translations or traveling and translations more closely and to have those as the kind of grounding terms for the project. And what I was thinking of by those two terms, which can be very capacious, I was both drawn to particular theoretical works and other ideas by previous scholars, such as Mary Louise Pratt or James Clifford, who from more either literary or kind of travel writing from the 19th century and imperial type of literature, or from an anthropological perspective in the 20th century, had linked those two ideas of travel and translation. And how they linked up were not necessarily the same way that my project would eventually do, but they, it got me thinking of how one's travels, both in a physical sense between you know, the idea of going from one place to another on a side of travels by either you know desire or need or also the kind of um, and also travels of formation right travels for education travels in order to know oneself and one's country better or travels abroad in order to reflect back on the experience of one's home how those types of travels also combine with travels that happen in a more figurative or metaphorical sense through one's readings and through a sort of engagement with the world beyond one's own language and nation and culture by learning about other places. 
So I was thinking of travels in those two broad senses, and then thinking of how through those processes, there's ideas and experiences of translation that are unfolding in not just a linguistic sense. Um, I think we often think of translation in its very common um, place definition of interlingual translation, right? The translation between two different national languages. And I was interested and still am interested in how these translations, while there's often a linguistic component, how they often have both cultural and a type of even epistemological resonances of, um, of how individuals, peoples, nations translate. And so going to your other part of your question about the archives, what I was finding or what I was drawn to was in some ways the journals and the periodicals and the personal correspondence that both documents those type of travels and in the process facilitates types of translations. And I found that this type of archival work I was doing was much more prevalent when I was working with the 19th century materials and the early 20th century materials. And I think part of that has to do with my approach to trying to understand that time period, but also the ways in which the communication itself unfolded. The difference between writing about a contemporary writer where you can read interviews with them or see their presence in social media and in other types of more accessible platforms versus writers who have been dead for decades or centuries. And in order to try to reconstruct their experiences of travel and translation, it's necessary to go to their letters, their diaries, their contributions to literary and journals and other sorts of newspapers. Absolutely. And I think also, um, right, the, there are key moments, right, in the, the 19th century and, you know, 20th century um, in relation to these travels and in relation to, to Brazil's history and United States history as well, right, that uh, influence the ways in which the correspondence and the, these, the figures that we will uh, talk about uh, in the book um, have moduled, right, their, their writing and also their own position as either elites or, you know, people coming um, to United States or from United States to, to Brazil, right? So um, I think those um, probably might have been present in the archives, and you do bring them in the bring them back in the book in a genealogy of the key terms in the translation of Brazil within the hemispheric Americas since the late 19th century. Right, that that, that was a quote um, that drew my attention from from page nine. And um, also, the book offers a more expansive and nuanced vision of Latinx identities and hemispheric connections. Um, that uh, you know, as as I've seen on a, the, the previous page, and. Um, you know, I was thinking about these key moments, identities, the connections, and um, I was wondering whether you could expand a little bit more on them for, for the listeners. Of course. So one thing that I was thinking about, or why this idea of trying to establish, in some ways, parallels between Brazil and the United States as sort of one of the departure points for the work, was because we often think of the United States is a continental country that has a continental expanse, it has all of these challenges, diverse peoples, and also a very complicated history when it comes to questions of race and nation. And Brazil similarly has a geographic, a continental expanse, a very complex history of race, 
slavery and the legacies of those experiences that while are, they're similar, they're also very different and specific. And in thinking of this idea of key, a genealogy of the key moments in translation of Brazil within the hemispheric Americas, I was wanting to draw attention to both the parallel or and similar histories, but yet ground them in their, specific, their specificities. And to do so, I decided to focus on four more or less geographic, four distinct historical moments. So I was beginning, the project begins in the 1870s. And the 1870s, I found for both Brazil and the United States, were a key moment of transition because the 1870s is when Reconstruction is failing in the United States. There's been the Civil War, slavery is abolished, and yet that idea of a promise of a new future and of a more equal and inclusive future, especially for the South, is coming to an end. And yet at the same moment, this idea of the U.S. as a place that has at least abolished slavery is particularly relevant to Brazil. Because in the 1870s, Brazil is still a slave state. It is still an empire. It is not yet a nation or a republic, which is something that's a particular distinct history of Brazil as the only nation of the Americas, with the exception of Haiti for a brief period, to have a um, monarchical rule for an extended period of time. So instead of going from colonial rule under the Portuguese to an independent republic, it had a period of a, over 60 years as an empire. And so it's in that moment of the 1870s that there's coming to be a sort of questioning of, of the empire and the questioning of Brazil as a state where slavery was still legal. And so in that moment of sort of a pre-transition period, but a moment where Brazil's rethinking its position and legacy in the, in, the, in the hemisphere and more broadly the world, that was a particularly interesting moment because it's a moment where it turns increasingly to the United States as a potential model. And the, moment, the work that I look at, and as we'll talk more about as we get into the chapters, is Novo Mundo, a journal that was published in New York in Portuguese and had uh, certain writers that were especially important as we think about the history of Brazil, like Michel Giacis and Sousa Andrade, um, who were not necessarily, um, and Sousa Andrade was not necessarily important at the time, but is an interesting, curious figure. But these writers were thinking about how the U.S. could be a model for Brazil and also because they were in New York as Brazilians, and it was a community only of about 100 Portuguese speakers in the U.S. at the time, they were interacting with Spanish Americans, with other sort of members of a hemispheric community. And I wanted to remind readers or sort of put in this presence that we often think of sort of ideas of immigration or ideas of a comparative hemispheric identity as something that exists more in a borderless contemporary world where NAFTA is the basis of things and there aren't strict borders. And of course, this is very much a type of idea of globalization in the late 19, 1990s, early 2000s, as opposed to our current reality, especially the current reality during COVID. Um, but I was wanting to at least remind people of like, okay, Brazilians have always, not 
maybe always been her, but there has been a longer standing presence than just contemporary exiles um, after the military dictatorship, for instance. So that was the moment where I really started the project was with the 1870s. Then another key period that I look at is the 1920s. And the 1920s more as a moment, well, first of all, an important moment in the history of the world as there's sort of this internal reflection um, in the interwar period. But it's also a, it, particularly in Brazil, it's a moment uh, where the modernismo, uh, the modernistas and the movement of modernismo is rethinking of the idea of the nation and the idea of national culture, not so much by traveling abroad, but by traveling within the country. And at the time, there's it's a Brazil's now democratic, it's entering into its before they enter into the um, period of Vargas and the uh, more of a dictatorial period. So it's at the end of the first republic, transition into the second republic. And again, a moment of rethinking what is the vision of the nation. Similarly, the U.S. is at the moment, but it's also a moment of sort of codifying and recodifying forms of racism. And that idea is actually appears in some of the writings of the modernists, Brazilian modernists at the time, as a reason for why they would not want to possibly go to the U.S. Because there's this idea and assumption of the U.S. as a much more racist country because of the laws in the Jim Crow South, for instance. Then I move forward to the 1960s, 1970s, as another moment of rethinking hemispheric politics in response to both U.S. intervention in the hemisphere after the Cuban Revolution in the late 1950s, and this idea of there needing to be a presence of the U.S. and the Americas, not necessarily because of goodwill or a desire for more amiable politics, but as a way to prevent threats of communism, and very much in the Cold War mentality. And rather than focus broadly on this historical context, what I do in this looking is I focus on the figure of Silviano Santiago, who was living in the United States during the 60s and 70s, was working at universities. And during those experiences, was interacting with other Spanish Americans, other who were either exiled or immigrants, and thinking about these kind of the shared affinities of what does it mean to be someone from Latin America or the Caribbean in the United States, either as a political exile or as an economic migrant, at a moment where there's a distrust and a dislike for people from those other parts of the country, either because of politics or because of often racism or other sorts of perceived slights. And so that's another moment that I focus on. And then finally, I focus more on the contemporary moment, say early 2000s, with the works of Adrian Lisboa, who similarly is looking at the experiences of Brazilians as migrants in the United States, and how the experience of Brazilian migrants both is similar to migrants from other Latin American countries, either from Central America or from Mexico, and very distinct because of certain ways in which Brazilian identity in with respect to these ideas of Latin American or Latinx identity can both enter into, there can be a sort of a ambivalent relationship with Latinidad um, that we can discuss more later. But those are sort of the key moments um, that I was focusing on and 
Yes, I think hopefully that gives a sense of those answers and we can go more into it as we get into the specific chapters. Sure, for sure, absolutely. And it does um, provide the, the, the chronological, in a way, uh, line that the chapters follow. And, you know, it does bring to, to you know, to, to the front the idea that the, the figures that we are looking at all probably had in their, uh, in their minds as they were writing this comparison, this kind of being in two or more worlds, um, where translation mediates their position um, between, among, in, outside these worlds. Um, so you know the the type of thinking also comes 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 out of the writing, right? So um, before we get deeper into the chapters, I want to ask about methodology um, because the book proposes a comparative approach uh, from a literary vantage point, but also looks at newspapers and overall cultural contexts. Um, and um, I think this this is one of the questions that I, I ask everyone. But um, you know, here I was wondering whether you could tell us more about your preferred methodology and technical details you favored um, for your work. Yes, um, that's an interesting question. I guess I've never thought of it as my preferred methodology, but just more my methodology, um, or just <laughs> right. what I end up doing. It's an interesting thought, though, as right. I'm trying to think through why I'm doing the things that I'm doing and how it hopefully forms a cohesive methodology. But I think it's often much more scattershot in how we approach things. And I think one thing that's always driven me is, or guided me in my work, has been an idea that these literary and cultural texts cannot be understood without a, a more detailed and fleshed out historical and social context. So part of what I try to do in the chapters and what I do in my work more generally is to think about those intersections between history, politics, economic change, sort of the broader societal context, and what is happening in the literary work. And so that, I think, is part of what I'm doing is more of a, a, a contextualized reading where I'm not a historian, I'm not proposing historical arguments and using the literary texts as historiographic materials, right, or as historical evidence. Instead, I'm thinking of and reading the works of historians and drawing on their sort of insights and descriptions or um, sociologists who write about transracial or transnational racial optics and things like that related to the experiences of contemporary migrants and try to think about how these literary works are engaging with the both historical and contemporary phenomenon. And so that's one element. And I think a second part of this, of why this approach, is because I'm thinking in part, especially for the book about the audience, who is going to read this ideally. And I hope that while it can be read by people who are specialists in Brazil, who are interested in Brazilian literature and culture, I'm hoping that it will also be of interest to a broader readership, including readers with very little familiarity with Brazil, people who might be interested in the hemispheric Americas or have an interest in the sort of Latin America generally, or even thinking of, you know, reading among, you know, people like my family members who have very little idea of what I do and what I'm thinking about and spending all this time reading and writing about. But that have sort of thought like, oh, yeah, 
my daughter goes down to this country that's in the South America and it's big and I don't quite know, but thinking of it like, okay, how can, through a groundedness in historical or literary and cultural text, try to establish parallels between these two countries or try to think through these experiences in maybe the terms of another place. So I think that's part of why I was going or why I frame the chapters how I do or have in the introduction a sort of overview of what's happening in these two countries at these different moments. Um, but then moving more to thinking of the, for instance, the incorporation of newspapers or cultural criticism or film or other sorts of materials in the chapters themselves, part of that has to do with thinking, especially in the late 19th century and early 20th century, of where literature was circulating, how literature as a field existed. And it was often through journals, through periodicals, through serialized um, folletins, right? And so that idea of how there wasn't necessarily as strict of a division between a literary space and other types of journalistic discourse led me to look at some of the journals from the time, look at the periodicals, look at the material and visual culture of the journals themselves as a way to try to have a better understanding of, of the time period and also of the ideas that were circulating, the ideas that were traveling between the small group of Brazilian elites who are living in New York and their readership in, say, uh, in Brazil and other parts of the Americas. And I think similarly, that led me to also include say, letters, correspondence, um, images in especially the modernist periodicals where they were kind of putting forth um, their methodology or their manifestos for a new form of literature that often included images or excerpts of some of the novels that I study. Um, so I wanted to have that sense of how a text lives beyond its actual printed words on a page. And Maybe some of that also has to do with this interest in travel and translation. How do texts travel and circulate? And how do they, their forms in translation lead to afterlifes of particular texts or the kind of ongoing circulation of them? Sure, absolutely. And it's, um, you know, as, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, um, you know, all our works um, and, you know, how um, sometimes there's this disconnect between academia and our families or, you know, um, sometimes friends as well. And how it could be, um, you know, th th there's some sort of translation, if I may say it like that, that happens. And um, it's always good to to be able to um to show right what we do um, to the people around us, but also I think there's a joy in in discovering how these texts uh, travel and how they are discovered in different cultural contexts. Um, you know whether that it's in the Americas or it's in Asia or you know in Europe. Um, for me, it has always been a joy to discover these this little you know um, kind of traverse traversings, if I may say it like that, um, of texts. And, you know, speaking of, of journals, um, I, in chapter one, uh, entitled The New World Travels and uh, Translations of uh, Unovo Mundo, um, you turn your attention to the literature section from, uh, from this periodical. And um, in that particular section, there are essays by now 
famous authors such as Mashadul Giasis, um, who puts forward ideas about nationality, translation, and the formation of a uh, hemispheric identity and positionality. And uh, um, I was wondering if you could tell us what were some of the more in-depth discussions that this periodical presented and how it sculpted the understandings of the act of translation and travel um, at the time and later on, um, right, for, for the readers. Yes, of course. So the essay that you referred to by Michel de Giassis, uh, which was published in the journal in March of 1873 and was about his idea of the instinct of nationality, which is more or less the sort of idea of, well, what is, what's going on with Brazilian literature today? It was an essay that he was asked to write by the journal's editor. And from that essay, he comes to the conclusion, or in that essay, he comes to the conclusion that in order to be Brazilian, you have an intimate sense of being Brazilian. And it doesn't, you don't have to write, a Brazilian writer doesn't have to write about the local color or about historical events or cultural traditions that are specific to Brazil, but rather to possess this intimate sense of Brazilianness. And so it's something that in some ways precedes the ideas that we might see later in essays by Borges on the Argentine tradition and, um, and the writer. Or, for instance, in even more recent discussions, sort of what are these intersections between national writing or national literature and the realms of world literature? And it was that essay in particular that drew me to the journal initially. So when I would read this, an essay that's often taught in seminars or courses on Brazilian literature, or when you're reading about Machado de Assis, there are references to this essay. And the references, or the essay itself, will have a small note that said, published originally in Novo Mundo, New York. That small note piqued my curiosity. It's like, huh, Novo Mundo, New York. I wonder what that journal looked like. I wonder what it was like. So I started to look for it. Luckily, um, while I was at grad school, I was at um, Berkeley and the Stanford Library has actually an incredible collection of Brazilian materials, including all nine years of this journal that, for some reason, I could check out. So I had the years of this journal in my apartment while I was in grad school. I don't think I should have ever been allowed to take out 19th century journals from a library, but it was fascinating because that was also, instead of just being the digital copies or the you know, the microfiche versions of it. I was able to have spread out on, you know, the table as I and look at these really broad sheets, the images, the lithographs, the advertising, all of the sort of different levels that existed in the journal. And while I was initially, say, interested in the more literary aspects, looking at the journal, it became evident that the literature was just one small part of it. Michelle's essay was only one small part of what was a really complex project of a journal that, as its subtitle describes itself, was a illustrated periodical of the progress of our era. So to give a sense of that sort of idea of progress era, thinking of ideas of how Brazil could be modern by following some of these processes or projects, and as I read the journal, I realized that the chapter needed to focus not just on literary, but also on elements of technology, education, 
and also sort of broader socioeconomic and political issues. And so in framing this chapter, the journal, I'm thinking of how it's also translating ideas, right? Translating and proposing a sort of visions of what educational systems could be or how uh, ideas and discourses of abolition might circulate in Brazil. And so some of the key elements that I was focusing on in the chapter and that the journal focuses on, there's in addition to the literary, which we reference, especially with Machado's essay, there's also a constant presence of ideas of technology and of scientific discourse and discovery. In particular, there was this fascination with the travels of scientists, specifically geographers and geologists, who were traveling into parts of Brazil and were writing about the Amazon River Basin or were writing about other sorts of parts of the Brazilian land for readers in the United States. And the journal was, in turn, translating those ideas and depictions of Brazil for Brazilian readers. There's a sort of a process of maybe a type of back translation where the ideas of what, say, a North American geologist found in the Amazon and he was teaching to his students at Cornell, then the journal is summarizing that and creating a precis for readers in Brazil in part sort of contribute to understandings of their own nation, but also to understand how the country is being seen from abroad, how people in the United States are thinking about Brazil, are talking about it to their students or writing about it in books that were published in English and to serve as that communicator, that sort of transnational or hemispheric bridge between the two countries. Another key component that emerged in the journal with frequency was discussions of education and particularly of the public education system in the United States as a potential model for the future of education in Brazil. In particular, there was more of an interest in the university system. Universities like Cornell received a great deal of attention, in part because there was this connection with Brazil, and there were certain Brazilian students who were studying at Cornell at the time. Other universities were mentioned, in part in, related to the 1862 Moral Land Grant, which sort of uh, created the public university system as we know it now in the United States. And at the time, Brazil had no public universities. There were law schools and medical schools, but no university system. So there's a sense of, look, if we don't sort of implement some of these technological discoveries or educational processes, this idea of Brazil becoming and sort of contributing to processes of modernization in an increasingly global and capitalized world will, will fall behind. And some of that also came out to play in the depiction that the journal had of the 1876 Centennial Exhibition, which unfolded in Philadelphia. And this exhibition, Brazil had a really prominent role. The emperor at the time, Dom Pedro II, traveled to the United States and inaugurated the exhibition next to uh, President Grant. So these two bearded men were the ones who turned on the Corley's engine that then powered the rest of the exhibition. And given that sort of prominence, I think it was a symbolic act, the two of them, and they were was prominently featured in the journal. There were lithograph reproductions of that encounter. And so 
I wanted to depict that a little bit to think about how through these international exhibitions, which were very prominent in the 19th century, Brazil was again presenting itself for a global audience or for at least an audience in the United States by selecting certain raw materials, natural resources, artistic works, and other examples of their, their bounty, right? They're in various senses of the word. And kind of consolidating it and condensing and curating it into a form of display. So those were the main ideas that were circulating in the journal, in addition to the literary component. In some ways, the literary component was actually a much smaller part of the journal. But I, what I was hoping to do with this is to think about how, even if something is not specifically literary, it's contributing to the sort of discourses of, of the nation, of, um, of how the nation is seen, and of how language and discourse is functioning. So in some ways, I was approaching the journal as a whole as a literary artifact, even though not all of it was about literary works. Um, there were some serialized works in the journal, for instance, um, translations of Harriet Beecher Stowe's My Wife and I, translated as Mia Signorio. But um, for the most part, what I was looking at were more of these other types of articles. Fascinating. I mean, I would love to see it uh, if possible. But, you can see, um, so it is possible to find, um, there are uh, digitized versions of it that are um, visible. And then the, the Library of Congress and the Brazilian National Library have copies of it as well, and the New York Public Library. But the digitized versions are much more difficult to see, and it's hard to get yeah. a sense of the scale of the of the journal absolutely yeah and the, the right the, the the position in the page and you know the feel that you have from seeing that it, it's different and i think it's um you know it, it's great that we can see it in digital uh form but you know it, it takes away a little bit from its charm i think um but yeah um, so um, you did mention uh, export, um, the word export, and then I thought, oh, yes, in chapter two, which is entitled Modernism for Export, the Translational um, Origins and Afterlives of Makunaima, um, you focus on the lives and afterlives of Mario Giandraggi's uh, 1928 work, Makunaima. Right? And this is one of the most famous masterpieces that enjoyed and still enjoys critical attention, both in hemispheric studies as well as in literary studies in general. Um, and um, I, was, I was thinking whether we could walk through its multiple mediatic appearances, translation, um, the, the translation work at the basis, um, and also its cultural travels um, that this chapter proposes. And I think it's, it's quite fascinating, um, you know, to, to, to learn about. Yeah, well, thank you. I hope it's fascinating to learn about. It's a difficult text, as I'm sure you and others who have read it before, and especially who've read it in its English language translation. If you've read that translation, you're kind of like, huh, what's going on here? Luckily, there will be a new translation coming out soon, either I think in early next year by Katrina Dodson, and she's translating it for New Directions which is that I hopefully will help bring this text to the attention even more prominently within 
hemispheric studies and more broadly within comparative literary studies, because it is a critical work of of literature of Brazil, of the Americas, and really of world literature, given that it both returns to Amerindian myths and legends and yet has influences from other literary traditions and is a very both, mm, it's hard to even describe, especially as you try to summarize the plot of the novel or think of all of its multiple influences. It's it's very complex and as a such a milieu of cultural references and influences and historical points that are all impact or you know connected in a slim novel. I think it's about 120, 150 pages, something like that. And yet it's very dense. And so because of that, while well, you've, as you rightly mentioned, Victoria, it's one of the most famous works of Brazilian literature. And yet I would say it's one that still resists easy circulation and translation, in part because of these complexity. And so what I'm aimed to do in the chapter is to both underscore what I describe as its origins in translation, and then think about how these origins in translation end up posing difficulties to subsequent processes of interlingual translation. And so what I say by its origins in translation, I'm referencing the fact that Mario Gianfraji's novel is based on Amerindian myths and legends from the Orinoco River Basin, especially from the Pemon people, that had been documented by the German ethnologist Theodor Koch-Grunberg. So Koch-Grunberg heard the tales that were translated to him by two indigenous interpreters who translated them into Portuguese. Koch-Grunberg then documented them in German. Mariangi Andraji read them in Koch-Grunberg's works. So he went to the German and was referencing in his archives in Sao Paulo, at the University of Sao Paulo, uh, their Institute of Brazilian Studies, can see actually the his uh, Mario Gendraji's version of Koch-Grunberg with its annotations and the and underlining of certain words and emphasis on oh this will be one of the tales that I take in order to create Makunaima, and so from there it becomes a process of really transformation, adaptation, and also create creativity where. At times, he's even accused of plagiarizing by other critics at the time. But he, at one point, says, you know, I didn't plagiarize. It's like, and yeah, say that I plagiarized, but don't just say it's Kolk Grunberg. I read them all. I copied them all. And it's very actually sort of taking ownership over this type of creative appropriation and thinking of in relationship to ideas of cultural cannibalism that are so tied to the Brazilian modernist during this time of the late 1920s, Andrade's text is really exemplifying that. So that's what I'm talking about when I say it sort of had its origins in translation. Subsequently, there's the novel itself, which was published in 1928, and had a really limited circulation during the rest of Maria Andrade's life. Um, it wasn't translated until the 1970s. Um, and in between that time period, there became, there were sort of more critical studies of the work. Um, but it was really after a film version that appeared in 1968 by um, Joaquim Pedro Giandraje, not related, same last name, but not related. Um, 
And Andrade's version really amplified and sort of made even more explicit some of the elements of uh, anthropophagia or a type of cultural cannibalism and cannibalism itself. And his work was very much informed by the tropicalists or the aesthetics of tropicalia in the late 1960s. And partially the film, because it debuted at, at international film festivals, because there were threats of censorship, but then its success in the international film circuit helped to sort of ameliorate, it gained attention and sort of gained a renewed visibility for the text um, in, and for the idea of Makunaima, in not only in Brazil, but also in sort of broader hemispheric and global circuits. And around that time was when the sort of moments of its translation into other languages appeared. However, before I look at the translation or at the, um, the film version in my chapter, I focus on partially some of the difficulties of trying to translate the work. And I look back at a correspondence that Mario had with his, who was going to be his English language translator, Margaret Richardson Hollingsworth. And these letters are fascinating because it's both her asking for more money and trying to make sure the contract is in order and thinking of translation much more as a business. Whereas Mario is always being like, but how are you translating this? Here are the words that I think are difficult. Here are the ones that I think you might need to transpose. Here are the ones that you just leave in the Portuguese and add a footnote. And I want to see your version, like much more interested in the aesthetic project. And so those letters and the exchange I found fascinating as a way into an insight into Mario's own aesthetics of translation and his own sort of desired practice of what an ideal translation of his novel would have been. And unfortunately, that project and that sort of more of a collaborative approach to his translation never came to fruition, but he left and those notes that he shared with um, Hollingsworth are available and are in the critical versions of his book. And I know Katrina's consulting them and others have looked at them as a way to kind of gain insight into how to possibly translate this very difficult novel. And so I look at that before passing uh, on to an analysis of Joaquim Pedro de Andrade's film. And the final component that I look at at the chapter is a 1997 novel by the Guianan author Pauline Melville that's called The Ventriloquist Tale. And I think of it as a fictional recreation of Makunaima because Makunaima emerges as the narrator, the first person narrator of this tale, who then disappears during the midst of the majority of the novel and reappears at the end. And the idea of this is fascinating because it's both the, the who was the protagonist is now the narrator, but is now the sort of narrator who disappears. But because he's narrating the story, there's sort of an exertion of, of agency over the process but it also demonstrates a type of hemispheric exchange and circulation of the text of Makunaima that resulted in the possibility that a Guianan writer could know about Makunaima, but that that knowledge of the text passed through the translation, the um, 1985 version by Goodland. So those are the, the main sorts of both the text that I look at, its origins and translation, and its subsequent afterlives in film and fiction. However, there are many more sort of forms of cultural or media appearances, mediations of this text. For instance, there's an opera, 
there's a soundtrack, there are play performances of it, there are, you know, critical essays um, that take it, and in a work by Robert Morris, it's called McLuhanian, which looks at, you know, the idea of Marshall McLuhan, the media as the message, and imagines that as a way of rethinking the history of Brazilian studies. So it's been a really prominent text for rethinking and rewriting and recreating. Um, I've chose only sort of a few instances of its, um, its trajectory and its continued afterlives, but there are many more that would warrant and merit uh, study. I think, I mean, I have to agree here, but also is to say that I think, you know, um, it would have been maybe five, six chapters if you were to consider, uh, right, the whole, um, um, you know, uh, what has been written on Makunaima or uh, what are, um, you know, the broader implications through opera or through theater or through through other, you know, or I don't know, in, in maybe, you know, social media and Makunaima, right? So I think um, the chapter is, um, it just provides this insight, which is um, very, very rich in itself, but also allows the readers to, um, to go further if they want to and uh, or explains right what they missed or didn't understand the first time uh they read makunaima myself included i read it in the first um my first year of graduate school and uh, it was tough so your chapter actually illuminated a lot of uh, a lot of things for myself as well um here and uh, and also um, you know and uh, going further with the book in chapter three um, right uh, entitled Silviano Santiago's uh, translational criticism and fiction um, right it's also an author that was um, was you know a key figure at the time and um, you know your chapter theorizes uh, in even more detail the space in between that is created in, in translation and through traveling. Um, and char that characterizes the translated text as well as the place from which migrants or immigrants um, can speak or imagine they can speak. And here, Santiago's novella Stella Manhattan and short story collection Keith Garrett at the Blue Note and poorly told stories exemplify in detail what cultural possibilities can translation in all senses of the word um, create or even deny to a certain extent. And here, um, the, the question I had was, uh, how are Santiago's travels and his own translations seeping into his texts, and how is he defining this in between, the space in between um, for himself and the others? Because he's talking to to a community uh, with a community right in in New York. Yes, so Santiago's a really interesting figure of this sort of contemporary cosmopolitan intellectual from Brazil. Given that he was born in Minas Gerais, he studied at the university there and then received his doctorate in French literature and theory um, from the Sorbonne in the 1960s. Uh, and a moment when deconstructionist thought, right, so ideas of Derrida, Foucault, and others were becoming incredibly prominent in the field of French studies and Francophone studies, and more broadly within literary studies. So from that foundation and that formation, he received his first job in New Mexico, at the University of New Mexico, where he had to teach everything about Brazil and about Portuguese and about sort of Lusophone literature. So everything from your basic language class to graduate seminars on, you know, both Portuguese literature and Brazilian literature. 
and that. And so I think in some ways his experience of that, where he was also then in New Mexico, which is a, a borderland and sort of a space where Spanish has been a prominent language since the foundation of the state, right? And since the sort of um, 1600s or so, that the sort of intersections between Spanish and the experiences of immigrants and migrants, of Spanish-speaking immigrants and migrants in this border region, really was enlightening for him and made him kind of rethink his position and his experience and his own engagement with Brazilian and Portuguese language, literature, and culture. And also to think of Brazil as a part of Latin America, because it was only upon arriving in the U.S. and teaching at places like New Mexico and then at the University of Buffalo um, that he got to think about this idea of reading Brazilian literature in dialogue with Spanish-American literature, in dialogue with people like Borges or Julio Cortázar or other writers of the time. And so that part of that experience led him to rethink and to craft a vision of Brazil and Brazilian literature that went beyond just the nation, that went beyond the idea of a sort of rooted Brazilianness to think about how are Brazilian writers and Brazilian ideas part of a broader Latin American type of identity. And that idea of a Latin American identity or a Latin American discourse was really prominent in his formation of the concept of the entrelua or the space in between. And this idea, he first developed and proposed this idea in a speech that he gave in 1971 in Montreal. So he was giving it in French to an audience, in a, a Francophone audience, but in a space that's also thinking of this idea of an in-between is really interesting because it's a Francophone country or a Francophone province in the midst of a Anglophone, Francophone, but predominantly Anglophone country, right, within the America. And so that idea, it was very receptive to a concept of in-betweenness, both as a linguistic and cultural phenomenon. But when he was thinking of it, he had actually been invited to give a talk about anthropophagia, or about sort of Brazilian modernism and its ideas of cultural cannibalism. He eventually loops back to it in the essay or in the speech, but his mostly his thinking about what is the space from which we as Latin Americans speak and saying that we always speak or write against. It doesn't say whom exactly this writing against is happening. But this idea of the Latin American discursive space is one of kind of, of resistance and of writing and speaking against. It's implied that that against is most likely U.S. as the U.S. or other global powers and sort of and types of a gesture of an anti-imperial discourse or anti-neo-imperial discourse that coincides with the political context of the 1960s and 70s. So he's thinking of the entre, this in-between or space in-between entre lugar from both a linguistic cultural process, but also a political one. It's a political gesture of resistance. And from there, this sort of theory of the in-between, I trace how it, tra it goes and it travels itself in between languages and 
venues from the speech in Montreal to a version in English, to a version in Spanish, to a version in Portuguese, and then back into a translation in English, all the sort of expanded versions of it. And it's a really fascinating idea and essay. And what drew my attention to it, and I think is particularly interesting as a way to analyze through a lens of translation studies, is the examples, the literary examples that it includes. Not only does it think of references to Portuguese colonial literature and sort of a Brazilian colonial literature and the relationship between the copy and the original and questioning that dichotomy and saying that, you know, there can be a type of original copy in some ways. There can be creativity even within what is a reproduction. And there's a danger of us always falling into this binary of the copy, the original and the copy. So there's that element to it, which I think is really relevant and pertinent to translation studies. But then he also cites Borges's short story on the uh, Pierre Menard, the author of Quixote, which is a fascinating essay as a fascinating fiction um, to think about translation and originality and rewriting and what it means to write the same text but in a different context. And also a work by Cortázar, um, the 62 um, model for um, arm. I think if I'm not sure. I'm not thinking of the translation of it right now. Um, but that novel also similarly opens with reflections on translation and reflections on being linguistically and culturally in between as a you know Spanish speaker in Paris at the time. And so it's by drawing together two examples from Spanish American or Ar Argentine literature in particular and examples from the Brazilian and Lusophone canon, he's already proposing a more sort of hemispheric vision and Latin American vision of these ideas and experiences instead of something so grounded in the nation. And I'd say that this idea of the in-between, of the space in-between, extends into his own literary work. So while he initially is a cultural critic and really invested in the ideas of Derrida and how to communicate or to almost explain or translate these ideas to a Brazilian audience, he later in the 1980s begins to write his own fiction. And I found particularly his novel, So Manhattan, which is from 1985, and his two short story collections, uh, Keith Jarrett at the Blue Note and Historia Mal Contada, so poorly told stories, as particularly indicative of a reflection on these experiences of the in-between and of the space in-between. Because they are part, especially the Historias Mal Contadas, draw on his own experiences. There's some slightly fictionalized, or what we might call auto-fictional stories, that draw on his own experiences while living and teaching and working in the United States. So one of those stories, um, which is titled Bohon, translated as blot, describes a travel by bus in the, across the southern United States where the protagonist is reflecting and thinking about his, the similarity between his experiences and those of the black men on the bus with him, and yet realizes that his own language prevents himself from communicating with them clearly, and yet at the same point, he begins to realize how he, even though given his educational background and his class status in Brazil is perceived as upper class and is not, and, and therefore also white, he, in the context of the Southern United States and in Texas in particular, is no longer exists within that sphere. He is viewed as other, he is racialized, 
because of his skin color, because of his language, because of his not belonging to the normative ideas of what white means in a very strict binary system of the United States. And so that story in particular, I think, is really indicative of both this desire for a communication and transnational and, tra and cross-language, cross-cultural understanding through processes of translation, but also how translation comes up against a sort of point of resistance, where even though you may be able to speak across languages or find words for expressing the experiences, there's something about the rooted cultural nature of ideas of race, for instance, that resist straightforward translation, that resist a sort of mutual understanding between two different contexts. So that's one of the sort of fictional works that I look at. Another, um, with Stella Manhattan, draws more attention to this sort of ideas of um, what we were talking about before in one of the earlier questions where you were talking, asking me about this idea of Latinx identity and interactions between Brazilians and Spanish Americans. And in this novel, which it takes place in 1968 and 1969, but was written in the, um, it was written in the mid-80s, there's a reflection on experiences of exile and experiences of migration and what happens when Brazilians come into contact with Cuban exiles and others from different parts of Latin America in the space of New York. And there are passages that are reflecting on the type of hemispheric politics of the time. There are also passages where the in-between is much more of a also, the characters are mostly either queer or homosexual, and so there's also this other element of a sexual in-between or the in-between of sexuality of how there's one face that's presented and yet there's through either forms of cross-dressing and other sorts of expressions of sexual identity and sexuality that resist and push back against what is normative at the time, and especially normative in Brazil, and finding these in-between spaces that are also in-between spaces outside of the realms of normative understandings of nationality. Um, and so the works kind of allow for an understanding of the space in-between in multiple senses, not only as a sort of identity-based, whether it's in ideas of nationality or ethnicity, but also in terms of more cultural, linguistics, and in terms of gender and sexuality also. Very, very interesting. And I mean, my um, first reaction would say it's very cool to read and, and learn about these. Um, and I do, um, I, I really can see, for example, a course that could... Um, have these works, right, to talk about uh, comparative literature or to talk about experiences of uh, exiles, right, in New York particularly and see how, how New York can be even, um, you know, if we can use the word laboratory for an in-between space that, uh, you know, kind of disseminates works um, around the world and then they, they come back, come back to it and then talk about all these interactions and uh, meetings and and things that and, and travels of course 
that happened there and, um, you know, uh, create identities and communities and, and so on. And um, I think uh, in chapter four as well, we see some sort of continuity um, uh, on, on the subject with Adriana Lisboa's um, writing. And the chapter is entitled Testing Trans Translatability, Adriana Lisboa's um, Hemispheric Brazilian Novels. Um, and she um, also draws the attention to potential encounters between different Latin American communities in the U.S., as well as the role Brazilians play in United States of America, whether it's culturally, politically, or economically. And, and here my question was, regard, you know, was related to Lisboa's prose contributing to a theory of translation that resists, again, right, resists the tenets or some of the tenets of world literature as a field where potentially homogeneous narratives coexist. Um, I was particularly drawn to, to that. Yes, of course. So I would like to return to the part at the beginning of the question and emphasize again that in, in framing or focusing on Adrienne Lisboa, I am positioning her as somewhat an inheritor of the project, right? As sort of a descendant or um, a spiritual descendant of Silviano Santiago. And in that sense, her own experiences of travel and her experience background as a translator is also really critical. She before dedicating herself and completely to her own writing. She worked for years as a translator of English into Portuguese and also French into Portuguese. So it's interesting to think of her, how a practice of translation in some ways informed her own thoughts on the process and the sort of themes and ideas and reflections on language that appear in many of her works. And what I focus on in this chapter in particular is I look at several of her novels that have a type of intersection of travel and translation. But I'm most interested in her two of her most recent novels, um, Azukovo, or Crow Blue, and Hanoi, or, you know, um, Hanoi, which has not yet been translated into English. And those two works focus on Brazilians and other immigrant communities and sort of alternative forms of kinship and family within the United States. And she focuses on a sort of Denver area um, and with part of New Mexico as well in Crow Blue. And in Hanoi, the focus is on the Chicago area. Um, and so in, this, in these works, there are, for the protagonists, and especially in Azucovu, uh, Crow Blue, protagonist is a 13-year-old girl, um, Vange. And what's really fascinating in terms of your question, you're thinking about the prose and how it either resists or also just challenges some of our tenets or ideas of world literature. In some ways, at first glance, it seems like Adrian Lisboa's novels become or were great examples of these sort of contemporary buildings roman that transcend national and specificity and that therefore fit into a, a sort of canon or corpus of world literature. And yet, when you kind of delve further into the novel and read it more carefully, even though there is a type of simplicity or directness of the prose that's narrated in first person and of a reflection of the character of Vange when she's maybe in her 20s reflecting back on her experiences as a 13-year-old, so in some ways the language is fairly accessible and straightforward and and, you know, I was even, I've taught this work in 
more introduction to Brazilian literature courses in Portuguese and students who haven't had that much experience can understand and read it and, you know, get, delve into the novel. So it's not, say, challenging in terms of being experimental or having a prose that resists sort of mimetic representation or that wants to challenge the kind of conventions of syntax and lexicon. It's not challenging in that sense, but I'm framing it as this idea of how it tests translatability because of the ways in which certain cultural and historical specificities pose challenges to simple, straightforward understanding and mutual intelligibility. So one of these that I find particularly important is a passage where Vanja is trying, has to fill out forms at school. And as people who've traveled or migrated or, that you're, or just filled out a census are, informed with the, are familiar with the boxes. And the boxes are very limited in the United States as what you can check. Just there looking at, okay, Hispanic, I'm not that. What am I? I'm not. I'm Brazilian. I don't speak sports Spanish. I, my, everything is different. And yet, where do I fit within these very narrow categories that the U.S. recognizes? And that idea of sort of having your own sense of self, your own form of identifying and existing, not fitting into the pre-existing racial and ethnic categories of a country it's an example of how there's a sort of limitation of, of whether we can translate oneself or translate systems of codifying people and codifying races um, into different national and linguistic contexts. So I think that passage in particular is a good example of what I'm trying to tease out by saying that in some ways her prose resists translatability. Other instances are the references to the Araguaia guerrilla war, which are passing references to one of the other characters, Fernando, who had been a, a guerrilla in this um, Marxist army that was an underground resistance to the military dictatorship. And it just says Araguaia, and not without sort of delving into the experiences or that. And so in order to understand what that means, either have to be drawing on previous knowledge or going and looking up and sort of embarking on your own process of investigation and also translation, right, to sort of delve and deepen the understanding of that reference. So those are some of the ways in which I'm thinking of how her prose resists this either ideas of world literature or the possibilities of translation and translatability. Another element would be how the prose, and this is something we also see in Silviano Santiago's novels and stories, but the playing with a type of multilingual prose where words will exist in, and while most of the prose is in Portuguese, there'll be the inclusion of Spanish and English terms without glosses. They'll be italicized, but there won't be glosses defining them. And I think that's an important sort of, especially in passages, for instance, in Santiago's work between the protagonists, Stella Eduardo, and his Cuban neighbor, Paco, that are happening between Spanish and Portuguese and that exist in Spanish and Portuguese in the original in Santiago's novel, 
And yet in the translation, the sum of those, that movement between the two Romance languages that are quite similar and in some ways almost mutually intelligible is, are flattened. Um, and similarly, in the, the case of Lisboa, there are these conversations that unfold between Vange and her neighbor, the nine-year-old Carlos, whose family is from El Salvador, and then Fernando, who's her um, her guardian at the time. Um, and so those sorts of things of how there's moving between Spanish and Portuguese without glosses, and yet there's they're understanding each other, and yet how does that sort of how that experience can be translated into an English language version without flattening the details of those exchanges and the nuances of what it means to be sin papeles and how that term sin papeles has resonances for both Vanja as someone who enjoys citizenship and has doesn't have to worry about her papers and documents and yet for someone like Carlos and his family the word sin papeles without translating it as without papers or without documents or undocumented conveys all of that sort of rich cultural context. And that also makes sense in the Portuguese as well. So those, that's a little bit what I was thinking of with the ways in which Lisboa's prose is kind of thinking of a idea of translation or even of untranslatability that pushes back against more of the celebratory discourses of world literature. Absolutely. And it's, um, it's also, um, you know, when, when you mentioned um, um, sin papeles, right, that it's, uh, it's a little bit hard, uh, to say the least, to, to translate without flattening in English. Um, you know, it, uh, the translation would also take away from the effective, um, you know, impact that, that the two words can have for people who can identify with one of the characters or the family or or others um and the, the the experience itself and the feelings associated with that right can be um bypassed or flattened um in, in such a translation um and that would would be a, definitely a point of of uh, further debate for um you know practices of world literature and and so on and um, you know, but that's a different conversation for a different uh, different time and different interview. Um, and I, I do want to get to the conclusion now entitled Translation, uh, Translating Brazil Today, uh, Retranslations and Untranslatability. And the conclusion opens up conversations about retranslations and untranslated, I'm so sorry, untrans. Krista, help me out here. <laughs> yes. yes, I'm so sorry. No, no. Um, um, well, so, right, uh, speaking uh, languages that are hard, right, <laughs> uh, and um, uh, right in the market as a pivotal factor in the production of printed uh, translations. Um, and um, my question uh, here was, was thinking about the role that these concepts play in defining an aesthetic of translation alongside an aesthetic of the space uh, in between. Yeah, wonderful. It's really interesting to think about this idea of an aesthetic of the in-between, because I think partially what I've been describing in some ways in the previous two chapters, and especially with the examples that I mentioned of the simpapeles or the conversation between the two characters in Stella Manhattan that was unfolding between languages, I was thinking that in some ways an aesthetic of an in-between 
is an aesthetic that's also in between languages. In between languages, but not yet, not always a translation. That's sort of existing within both languages or multiple languages at the same time. And so in some ways, those works that embody a what I sometimes describe as a translational aesthetic or an aesthetic of the space in between are ones that resist forms of translation within the market and especially within the Anglophone market. And we can think of the limitations and problems of translation into English where often there's a commonly cited number of 3%, that only 3% of the works published in English every year are translations. And then if we go into more specificity, it's an even smaller percentage that's coming as literary translations. And then to think of the works that are coming and being translated from Brazilian Portuguese into English as an even smaller percentage. So given that sort of context of the market, the ideas and the texts and the works that enter into circulation, either in the United States or in England, or more broadly the Anglophone market, are a a very small percentage and often follow a similar type of aesthetic or a similar type of returning to your previous question about the sort of tenets of world literature and the forms of homogeneous narratives, there are often these more homogeneous narratives that either confirm a type of vision of Brazil as exotic. Um, And so we can think of why something like the works of Jorge Amado are often translated, or why City of God, the novel by Pablo Lins and subsequently the film, fit into that idea of and are translated and have a sort of global visibility. They are works that reaffirm right this idea of Brazil as exotic or dangerous or violent and often conform to the desires of a sort of market that is seeking otherness. Sort of what we think of this idea of Graham Higgins and the post-colonial exotic. So that's one element of it that I think is sort of out there and, and informing these contemporary dynamics of translation. Another element that I'm thinking about with this return and this idea, especially of retranslation, is this con- constant return to certain writers. And this idea that translations themselves age more quickly than the work. So there are these evergreen works, right? We can think of the works of Machado de Assis, whom we've mentioned earlier, or the writings of Clarice Lispector, that are often, there, especially in recent years, there have been a series of new translations um, that are retranslations into English that have either you know, developed with different critical apparatus or that have um, the New Directions project of translating the complete stories of Clarice and also uh, retranslations of various of her novels and novellas, including The Hour of the Star and others, are one example of this sort of project of retranslation and retranslation with a desire to have a supposedly uniform voice. Um, And we can, like, part of what I try to do in the chapter or in the conclusion is to think of some of the limitations of this desire to retranslate, of what happens when we continue to only translate certain voices and other voices remain excluded, remain excluded either because uh, lack of a sort of 
relevance or readership beyond Brazil or a perception of difficulty, a perception of experimentation and thus untranslatability. And yet part of this is that translations and the publication of translations is informed by not only market demands, but also by government incentives. And so the government incentives in recent years have contributed to the publication of retranslations of people like Mashabu and Clarice in context, not only in the Anglophone context, but in other languages. So that's one element that I'm looking at in the conclusion. And the other has to do more with this idea of untranslatability. And that's why I think the sort of intersections and connections between an aesthetic of translation and an aesthetic of the space in between more comes into play as I think of some of these works that because of the specificity or because of emergences of a multilingual prose, for instance, one of the works that I look at is um, briefly is called Mar Paraguayo, and it exists in kind of this Spanglish or, you know, Portuguese, Portuño, right? That's between Portuguese and Spanish, but also with some Guarani and other influences. And the challenge of translating a text like that, and there is was a recent translation that attempted to, in spite of its perceived untranslatability, create an alternative solution by incorporating some French, English, and some other indigenous languages and sort of another mixture um, that similarly reflected that sort of uh, linguistic milieu. And I think why I wanted to think of these two issues in relationship to the translation of Brazil and Brazilian literature today was to think about how in this moment of rethinking canons, of rethinking literary identities and national identities, a concerted and conscious practice of both our sort of what we do as readers and educators and researchers and also what is unfolding at the level of the market can open up small spaces for more experimental works, for different voices, for um, be it sort of more Afro-descendant voices or indigenous voices. So I also try to draw attention to some of those works, such as the work of David Kopanawa with the uh, recent work and translation of The Falling Sky. It sort of is bringing two an Anglophone audience, the ideas of Yanomami people and of indigenous forms of expression and of ways of seeing the world. So I think in some ways the conclusion leaves us with more questions than um, I maybe hoped for or um, the uh, previous chapters would have led us to, but I think part of that is also thinking of what literature means today, how it circulates, and how, especially in a moment where the position of Brazil, United States, the hemispheric Americas are in flux, and the ways in which the conversations between these countries are unfolding is not necessarily, is, or is at least moving towards hopefully sort of more spaces for a broader range of voices. And part of that, allows for embarking on works that may seem untranslatable and yet thinking of the idea of untranslatable in more of the sense of after and uh, 
also Barbara Kassen as the sort of thing that keeps on not translating, so that what's something that one returns to and tries to understand and tries to put forth an idea, but doesn't completely ignore or say it's not possible, but keeps on working through it. So I'm hoping that in some ways a sort of acceptance for moral alternative practices and for different forms of expression within small presses, within publications like Words Without Borders or other online venues, allow for a expanded understanding of Brazil within the literary sphere. I certainly hope so. And I'm looking forward to, to see um, this work coming out and, you know, expanding um, more and more as as uh, as much as, as, you know, humanly possible. Um, and as I would love to talk more, I really think we, we have taken a lot of your time. So I was wondering whether you could tell us more of your current projects. What are you working on right now after the book? Yes. Uh, well, that's always an interesting question. I think I have lots of different projects going on. Um, I've been working on a couple of articles recently, one that is sort of going off of some of these ideas that I mentioned of David Kopanawa and rethinking of ideas of how can other understandings of the world from a more Amerindian perspective contribute to a rethinking of ideas of world literature. Um, so that's one article that I'm working on as part of a dossier that I, um, I am creating with a co-author who's Faizi uh, Lima, who works at the University of Maryland, that we're putting together on thinking of world literature from Lusophone perspectives. And so that's one small kind of small project, somewhat related to the previous book, but that will hopefully expand and invite other reflections on some of these issues of translation, cosmopolitanism in, in between, and also literary markets. Um, and then I've also been recently working on an essay that's Kind of again going off of these ideas of the in between and of, of Brazilian literature as something that's in between to a book at a Japanese Brazilian literature or and especially representations of Japanese Brazilians in both Brazilian literature and in more contemporary expressions from um, so looking at them in works by Mari de Andrade and also de Andrade in the 1920s and 30s and then in contemporary works by uh, Nipo Brazilian writers and um, thinking especially of experiences of migration and tied to the coffee plantations, which is another, only a small article, not a full book-length project. felt like I needed some smaller transitional things before moving into the next book project. But what I'm working on and starting to read for and write um, in sort of more of an exploratory mode for my next book project, which I'm tentatively titling right now, Global Lusophone Cities, culture, capital, and citizenship. And in this, I'm thinking about some of the issues and ideas that uh, were in the previous book, but I'm also interested more in thinking of ideas of citizenship and circulation of culture and capital within particular spaces and thinking of how from the emergence of the sort of Portuguese-speaking world as, an in, as a maritime empire with its basis in Lisbon, to shifts when the, the royal family went to Rio and Rio became an increasingly important center of culture and capital. And then to what I'm referring to as the contemporary global Lusophone cities of Sao Paulo and New York as places where there are immigrants from various parts of the Portuguese speaking world. And yet they're sort of thinking through their forms of intersections and exchanges and dialogues and 
while I'm still reading and gathering materials, part of what I was thinking of of why I was drawn to New York was looking more recently, I'd been writing for a work that will be coming out in Portuguese literary and cultural studies on forms of diasporic heritage and was looking at the expressions of the Portugal Day celebration in Newark uh, and the Brazilian Day celebration that happens in New York um, every August or September. And so thinking of those public manifestations and displays of a type of belonging, nostalgia, and cultural heritage of immigrant communities in the United States and specifically in the New York metropolitan area led me to think more about New York as a space for those sorts of interactions um, among Portuguese speakers. So I'm not, the project is in its very incipient phases right now, lots of reading and thinking and watching films and that sort of, but hopefully it will be coming to fruition soon as I think more about these encounters and exchanges and also forms of resistance. I'm very excited to read it when it comes out, both the second book, but also the, the articles. And um, I'm looking forward to, to, to them. And, you know, I want to thank you very much for talking to us today about your book and your project. And, um, you know, I, I really hope to, um, to get the chance to interview you again for the next book. Thank you so much. This has been really fun to talk about the book and to talk about it now that it's no longer the anxiety producing of, oh my goodness, I have to find someone to publish it, but more of this, oh wow, this is the thing that I did and that's come together. So thank you so much for this opportunity. Um, I really appreciated it and enjoyed thinking through it with you and reflecting on the process a little bit. Thank you so much, Krista. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. <laughs>